All right. Hey, if you're online, we want to say we're glad you're there. And hopefully you got a chance to maybe say hello in the chat room. Or, and if you haven't done that, you should hop in there. Scott Vare's hosting it, and uh, he'd, love to, he'd love to say good morning to you and, and welcome you there as well. So last week we were talking about the, the whole Easter story and the resurrection. And we took a little bit of a different approach. This is one of the things that we wanted you to catch about the Easter story that maybe you've missed that even though Jesus had said time and time again, you know, I'm, I'm going to be killed, I'm, I'm going to come back to life on the third day, his disciples had some serious issues trying to sort this out and put it together. In fact, when Luke begins to unfold the story of the resurrection, he makes this clear as well. Now, last week we were in John, but this week this story in Luke that we'll dig into helps make this even more powerful and maybe we'll meet you in the place that you've been if you've been in a spot where You've had some doubts, some misgivings, maybe some things you don't even want to say out loud. When Luke begins to unveil the story, the women go early in the morning, like we said last week, and they're there to tend to the body of Jesus. They get there, the stone's rolled away. The women see that the stone is rolled away. Jesus isn't there. They have some interactions with some angels, and they run all the way back to tell the men. But the men did not believe the women. Women, can I get an amen from that? This is... All right, I mean, has this been the story of your life? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not trying to start a fight. I was just curious. Because their words, what? Say it with me. Seem to them like... That's so interesting that this would be the case, that Luke would say this. Why would it seem like nonsense? Jesus said it. He predicted it. And now it's happened. The women report it. The tomb is empty. It would have been guarded by... You know, one of the most secure forces known to the history of mankind, and now the body is missing. At this moment, Peter runs to the tomb. Luke records this. And when Peter runs to the tomb, we get a little more detail from Luke than we got from John last week. Peter, however, he got up, he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away. And Luke says this, wondering to himself, what had happened. I wonder what's going on, Peter wonders. And for us, now to be fair, we have the whole context of scripture. We have the context of history. We understand the scope. We understand the deal. We understand the details of Easter, resurrection, and all of that. And so we've been able to put the pieces together, but they had something we don't have. They had Jesus in the flesh telling them over and over again, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to go down. In case you missed it last time I said it, here's how it's going to go down. Here's what's going to happen. And then it happens in front of them. And the span of time is only days here. you know. And of course, Jesus had repeated this over years. And they don't understand. They still don't get it. No one can put the pieces together. And our hope last week would be that if you ever find yourself in a spot where you're not able to put the pieces together, like so many of us throughout the last 12, 14 months, we haven't been able to put the pieces together. What's really going on? How do I make sense of what's going on in politics or, or race relations or in regards to health care or the science behind the things I'm reading or the science deniers and the arguments that are happening in my family or even how I feel conflicted in my own heart? If you're not able to understand the context of the gospel in all of these historical events that are occurring, maybe you won't feel so alone. Maybe you won't feel like you're, I don't know, as dense as you might 
presume at times because even the disciples didn't get it. Even the people who had a front row seat to all of these things, they found themselves wondering what had happened. They found themselves feeling like the women, what they said, it seemed like nonsense. And so if you've been frustrated or lost or not being able to find your way a bit through all of this, or maybe you feel like your faith is a little bit numb, Maybe you feel like you're not sure what you want to keep or hang on to in regards to your walk with God. Maybe you feel like you're a bit in the wilderness in a variety of ways. You're not alone. You're in good company. But there's a way forward, of course, and we talked about that a little bit last week. Now, the very next little story that Luke records in the next set of verses kind of helps us find our way a bit. And it's only in Luke It's my favorite story out of the whole resurrection passages, and it involves a couple fellas who follow Jesus. We only know one of their names, and we don't know anything about them, really. Here's what happens. Now, that same day, Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the very first one. Now, that same day, two of them, disciples of Jesus, they were going to a village called Emmaus and about seven miles from Jerusalem. So the road to Emmaus, the Emmaus Road, has some significance in Scripture. Maybe you know some of those stories. Emmaus, about seven miles outside Jerusalem, probably their home, or at least where they were headed to, maybe to see friends, but we're guessing their home. We're guessing that these two gentlemen were probably in Jerusalem for Passover and experienced all of the events that we know surrounded Jesus in Passover week. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They're just walking along the road. And when I read this, it reminds me that their culture was different than our culture. How they spent their time, you know, nobody hopped in a plane, nobody got in their car, nobody's speeding down I-25 or going around the belt loop. I mean, this is how they lived their lives. They walked and they talked. And we're missing something, aren't we? Because we don't do that, because we don't have that sort of pace in life, because they had this sort of pace, they had this next experience that began to unfold. Here's what happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And again, it's all about pace of life, isn't it? I mean, isn't there something Jesus could be doing? I mean, how long does he have? You know the post-resurrection timeline a little bit from Passover to Pentecost. Does anybody know how long that is? 50 days. That's right, 50 days. Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts that for 40 of those days, Jesus spent time appearing and discussing and explaining and offering proofs to the disciples, 40 days. Wouldn't you like 40 days like that where you could ask Jesus anything? How does that work? Wouldn't you like 40 days like that where Jesus cooks you breakfast? That'd be pretty great 40 days, you know. I I bet Jesus makes some mean fish. 40 days. Jesus' time is limited. And yet, here he is appearing on the road to Emmaus, to walk with a couple of disciples. I mean, they aren't ones of the 12. We don't know their names associated with that elite group. But they're two people that know the disciples and 
had paid attention. And there he is, just spending time, the same way he will with you when you have questions, when you're unsure, when you feel alone. His promise is, I will be with you. I will never leave you. And you might say, I don't feel him. Look, they didn't either. They didn't either. Now, I don't know what that means. Kept from recognizing him, spirit, supernatural, something unique. But they still didn't know who he was, but he was right there. Same with us often. So Jesus is walking along with them, and as he does, um, this is how it unfolds. He asked them, and I just love the questions that Jesus asked through the Gospels. They're the best. He asked them, what are you two discussing together as you walk along? It's a great question, isn't it? Watch the response. One of them, his name is, is Cleopas. So they stood still. They stopped walking. They literally stopped walking. Their faces are downcast. One of them named Cleopas. And it's good that we know his name because of this infamous statement that follows this identification. They asked, he asked Jesus, and this is just, I mean, you can't write a prose. You can't write a story like this. This just occurred. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, there'll be a moment later. The scripture doesn't tell us about it, but you know what happened. When Cleopas is at the end of his day, in the quietness of his heart, he remembers his exact wording to Jesus. And he has this shame attack. Do you ever have a shame attack? Do you ever think about something you did or said and the only thing you can do is just look at your feet and shake your head? Happens to me all the time. Usually after a Sunday sermon, (laughs) Cleopas is going to remember that he said that to Jesus. Incredible. But Jesus' response is even better. Jesus just looks at him and says, what things? What things? Cleopas lays out some bait. Jesus says, I'll take the bait. And then he gets out his own little fishing line and says, will you take my bait? And that's exactly what happens. Now, this little encounter that happens between Jesus and these two men on the road to Emmaus, it's, all I've done so far is just read you the text. That's it. It is so full of texture and meaning. I don't know why you believe what you believe about who God is, who Jesus is, what he did for you. I bet there are some things that are absolutely true in Scripture that you don't believe. And it's not because you have researched it and you know, done the digging and figured it out and decided this is not a part of my doctrine or theology and this is. There's all kinds of reasons why we believe the things we believe. And from our theology, what we believe about God flows our behavior. They're intimately connected. Even if you don't think you have a theology, you have one and you believe certain things about the world and who God is and how things operate. And it has to do with all of the things that we know to be true and understand. But then from that flows how we treat other people how we decide to operate our business, how we're going to be in our marriage if we're married or how we parent. And sometimes those things are connected and sometimes they are disconnected, aren't they? 
What you're going to watch unfold here is an interaction between these two gentlemen, Cleopas and his buddy, and Jesus, and we get a window into all of this that is true also about us. What do you think? What do you believe? Why do you? In other words, we could ask it this way. What are you sure of? What are you absolutely certain of? So Jesus says, what things? And they begin to answer. And because of the preservation of scripture and God's goodness, we get a front row seat to the whole thing. And so they answer, why? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. So remember, they're talking to Jesus, okay? He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. It's about a verse and a half. You know, we've numbered them and given them some place in Scripture to find them. But I would challenge anyone to find a sentence or two in Scripture that more succinctly, more clearly describes the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, they're good. They are solid. If I asked you, I bet it, I would struggle. I would struggle to do that in as few words as they did. I mean, listen to what they said. He was a prophet, absolutely true. He tells the truth and he's telling the future. He was powerful in word and deed. They, they don't even say, by the way, he raised the dead. All they're saying is he's powerful in word and deed, and it was before God, and God sees it all, and all the people knew it. They understood it. That describes the life and ministry of Jesus in as good a sentence as I think anybody could craft. And then the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. So we see the Romans are involved. They had to hand him over. They don't have the ability to crucify. They just have the ability to condemn and sentence so who's responsible? Well, the Romans and the priests and the rulers. I mean, this is abundantly clear. And that's not all. Not only are they knowledgeable, that's not all that happened, they say. Not only that, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. I mean, come on. Not only are they smart, not only are they clear, they know what's up, they know all about his ministry and his life, and they're up to date, aren't they? They even know what happened today, this morning. They know the women went to the tomb, they know the women saw, and they know that they had an encounter with angels and that the angels said he was alive. Then they go on, and they add a little bit of information. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. So who were their companions? Well, it's the disciples. I mean, these are friends of Peter and John and James and Bartholomew. Cleopas and his buddy, they're numbered among the followers of Jesus. They know the whole story. Same as you. They know everything, but they're confused and they don't understand it. And even though they know it all, that Jesus said he was going to do all this and that that's indeed what appears has happened, they say right in the middle of this explanation, 
this little sentence. In fact, let's read this all together, okay? All of us. If you're at home, say it out loud. Ready? But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But we, we had what? We had hoped. We had hoped. Right in the middle of all of this, in spite of all that they know. I mean, they know a lot. They know a lot. But their conclusion is this. That in spite of everything that we know, And everything that has happened, Jesus is not the one that will redeem Israel. There's a lot that seems like nonsense. Peter looks in the tomb. He's wondering what's happened. There's a lot we don't understand. But here is what we know for sure. Here is what we are certain of. Jesus will not be the one who redeems Israel. How could that be? How could they be so sure of that? How could they be so certain that that was the case? This is what they believed, and this is why they believed it. I've butchered the English language, but this is the only way in regards to tense that I could think to say it. This is what they're sure of. Jesus wasn't who we thought he was because Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do. That's what we know for sure. Jesus, we know he wasn't who we thought he was. How? How do you know this? Well, we were certain of it because Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do. What did you expect Jesus to do? Well, most of them expected Jesus to incite a political revolution and kick Rome out of the city. They expected a lot of things. And when they say redeem Israel, what they mean is put Israel in its proper, political, powerful place. In fact, if God is with you, then you will have power. This is the misunderstanding of many theologies, that power and spiritual influence are one and the same. In fact, there are many in our country and in our churches that made the same mistake over the last year, that power and spiritual influence must go hand in hand. Well, the Jews in the first century believed that to be the case. So surely Jesus wasn't the redeemer, the leader that we thought he would be. I mean, he's pretty special. I mean, we saw Lazarus breathing again. We saw him heal. We saw him cast out demons. We were sitting there at lunch and we didn't have enough and all of a sudden everybody's full. I don't understand it. Jesus is pretty incredible. But he's not the leader we thought he was. Why? Well, one of the reasons they thought this is because they all were eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. And the crucifixion and Jesus being who he said he was, well, these two ideas are completely incompatible. They don't fit. Our leader can't be killed. Crucifixion can't have anything to do with success, with leading, with domination, with a culmination of God's kingdom. And they were absolutely certain that because of that fact, that they were right. Now, you have the benefit of history. Were they right? Let me ask you, is Jesus the one that was there to redeem Israel and everyone else? True or false? 
It's absolutely true. But they had one fact, one piece of information, one perspective, a misunderstanding, and they built everything they believed on that. We have names for that kind of thing today. Uh, There's a couple names because there's a few things that they were probably engaged in. One we call a logical fallacy and another is a cognitive bias. You know what a logical fallacy is? Do you know what that is? It's It's an error in reasoning. Let me ask you, do you have any of your friends that engaged over the last year in logical fallacies? Have you been on the receiving end of a discussion where at the center is this subject of what you would say probably is a logical fallacy? That usually doesn't come into the discussion. We don't use the words logical fallacy. What we say is, he is so stupid. That's what we say. And I know you're not supposed to say the S word, but so that was just in quotes and by example. You should not repeat it, but that's how we say it. Well, these gentlemen, Cleopas and his buddy, they engaged in a logical fallacy. It's the if-then logical fallacy. If this happened, then this can't be true or it is absolutely true. If Jesus is crucified, then he can't be the one that redeems Israel. And they built their entire understanding of who God is and how he operates on that and that alone. Or it could be that they engaged in what we'll call a cognitive bias. Psychologists call it a cognitive bias. It's different than logical fallacy. You know what a cognitive bias is? It's it's an irrational emotional decision based on incomplete or a misunderstanding of information. We have a bunch of them. In fact, Those who understand this and research it and kind of list these things, there are actually about 146 different logical fallacies that are named. Different ways for you to misunderstand what's actually true. There are about 188 cognitive biases that make you come to a conclusion even though it's wrong and you're certain it's true. It's how you feel. It's how you see it. It's how you think. And so if you've done the math kind of quickly, what that means is is that just with these couple of ideas, there are 334 ways for you to be wrong. (laughs) That's a lot. I mean, how important is it to you that you're right? How important is it that you understand what is right and what is true and that you build your choices and your your path, relationships, your career, your marriage, whatever, on things that are right and true. Kind of important, isn't it? In fact, when somebody kind comes alongside you and begins to point one of these things out and you have this sort of epiphany, I didn't know that, I didn't understand it. You're so grateful, you're so grateful. When somebody at work that you don't like when they come alongside you or a neighbor that you didn't see coming has the audacity to hint that this might be the case in your life, you are also grateful? (laughs) No, they're the one that's so, well, insert S word of your choice, right? (laughs) This is how we are. And yet these men walking on the road with Jesus, the risen Jesus. I know, they don't recognize him yet. They say, we had hoped. We had hoped. 
because their conclusion was that Jesus wasn't who we thought he was because Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do. Cleopas and his friend aren't the only ones. Peter's confused. The women sound like they're jibber-jabber and nonsense. Thomas doubts. Nobody has put the pieces together. I bet you've done the same thing this year as well. I bet the same thing has happened to you as you have watched your life unfold. In fact, let's just pull 2020 out of the mix, right? We talk enough about 2020, don't we? Ready to put that, that deal to bed? Me too. You don't even need the upheaval of 2020 for this to be true. Think about the times in your life when God didn't do what you expected him to do, when things took a turn that you had no idea which end was up, and this could be said about me or you. Jesus, maybe he isn't who he said he was because he didn't do what I thought he was going to do. So maybe what I thought was true isn't true. I mean, we were certain when Lazarus came out of the grave that Jesus was the son of God, but now we're doubting that. I know that God is with me, but it feels like he's so distant. I know that the scriptures say that he loves me, but how he's acting towards me right now is anything but love. I know, I read it over and over again. It says I am forgiven, but I sure don't feel forgiven. I carry this guilt and this shame with me and it feels like I can't escape it. Cognitive bias, logical fallacy. Well, the terms don't even matter when you feel that way, do they? Not at all. Maybe God isn't who he said he is. Maybe it's not all true. Maybe I don't know which end is up. And maybe that's why I feel the way I feel. Like my faith is going through a bit of a yard sale. I don't know what I'm going to keep. I don't know what I'm going to take to Goodwill or let somebody take for a quarter off my property. Because maybe it feels like Jesus didn't do what we expected him to do. What happens, just like these two men on the road to Emmaus, is we come to conclusions. We build convictions based on this that some of the things that are true appear not to be true. And when we do that, we come to wrong conclusions that maybe God has a group of favorite people, that maybe He isn't who He said He is. Or maybe some of the things that you were taught that are bedrock true on a good day appear to be like a vapor on another day. And they emerge as doubts that take over. When we do that, we start focusing on unimportant details. We make the little things the big things. I bet you and I have done that over the last several months where we have decided that the big issue at hand is you fill in the blank. Whatever it is, and it's not near as big as it should be in your mind, and we've decided this is the thing I'm going to focus on. So what's the discussion about at lunch? What's the banner back and forth on text? What seems to be taking up the predominant subject matter of most of our conversations or rants or online posts and we miss the big picture 
And when we miss the big picture, then God all of a sudden fades into the background. It happens all the time. And like we said before, we live out of our theology. So these two men on the road to Emmaus, they have missed the truth completely. So here's what I want you to do right now. And if you want, you can pull out your phone. If you have a pen and taking some notes forever, you could write this down somewhere else. If you like to just think up in your imaginator, you can do that too. And I'd like for you to ponder this question. I'd like for you to wrestle with it right now. If you're online, you have an advantage. You get to take whatever posture you want or run and get a pen or a piece of paper if you want. If you're right here in this place, I'd like for you to wrestle with this question just for a moment, and we're going to see how this plays out in our own hearts and minds. What's one truth? In fact, that truth probably should be capitalized, capital T truth. What's one truth that you'd know for sure? And if you were typing into your phone or able to write it down, you could just, just write it out and name it. What is it? One truth that you know for sure. You just write this, this one thing down. In fact, if you were to boil probably the most important thing that you know, you could write it down. Now, if you had a, a rotten week and you went down roads you shouldn't have gone down, it could be the very first thing that came to mind for you is, well, I know this, I'm a sinner. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. That's what I am. And it could be that's the truth I know. That's true. Write it down. It's absolutely true. You and me both. We're in the same bucket. Then what's another? What's another one? So if you had a pen and you were writing, what would you write down? What is one truth that you know for sure? Anybody want to share one? Want to call it out? God is faithful. For those of you online, somebody said, right from our seats, God is faithful. Jesus loves me. Which me? Let me see your hand. Okay. That, Jesus loves that, that person right there. Loves you. He loves me too. In fact, as I thought this through this week and wanted to take you down this path, that's the first thing that came to my mind. It's pretty egocentric, I know, but that's who I am. A lot of my life is about me. And I'm trying to turn that around, but God wants me to know that he loves me. Somebody asked me last week after that stuff on John, you know, Phil, do you call yourself the pastor that Jesus loved? And I said, you know, I prefer the word adored, but love works, love works. And so start with this. This is what I want you to do this week. You're getting a taste of it right now, just a little taste. But this is so important. I can't even tell you how important this is, especially after the, all the experiences that we've been through. You need to know what is true, what is true, because you will live out of your theology. You live out of your theology. The stress you feel, the quality of your relationships, the truthfulness in your heart, your integrity, all of that flows from your theology. So 
if you come to the conclusion, you know, the thing I'm going to write down is that, that Jesus loves me or that God is love or maybe something about who love is or God's faithfulness, then you write that down. And that's, then you come up with another one. If you, if you started with, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, well, I can show you all kinds of scripture that will verify that to be absolutely true. <laughs> But then when I remember that God is love, well, I move that up just a little bit on the list. And I begin to decide that these are the truths that are operative in my theology. What does that mean? It means when I start to question or not know how God is leading me or who he is, I go back to these truths and I decide that this must be the case. Something the dudes on the road to Emmaus, even the disciples, and we'll give them benefit of the doubt. I mean, it was a confusing weekend and they finally found their way after 40 days, proves with Jesus. I mean, they all, all but John gave their lives fully and completely and martyred them to Jesus. And John did in a way as well. And many others have throughout history because they know it to be true. So what is it that you know to be true? So Jesus is on the road with these two fellas. They get to their destination. They're not all the way to Emmaus yet, but they're going to stay the night. And Jesus is going on. I guess he's going to Emmaus. I don't know. But he's about to go keep walking. And these two men say to Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus. They say, How you don't want to go. It's been a long day. We've been walking a long time. Just come with us. Stay with us. And Jesus gets talked into staying with them for the evening. So they get to their place where they're staying, probably some friends, and there's a spread of food, and Jesus sits down. And in that moment, Jesus must have said, you know, let's give thanks for this food. And Jesus picks up the food, he begins to pray. And at that moment, their eyes are opened, and they recognize who he is. And then he's gone like that. And then they say this. You ought to read the story for yourself and ponder all of this in Luke 24. Then they say, Oh, we, we knew it was him. That's a, called a cognitive bias. You can look that up too. How we think we're right even when we're wrong. Happens all the time. We knew it was him. And then they say this, weren't our hearts strangely warmed when we, he walked with us? And, and then, listen close. They turn around. They did not go to Emmaus. They did not stay the night with their friends. They ran all the way back to Jerusalem. Look, if you don't know the capital T truth that is going to guide you and be your compass, you could be on the wrong road to the wrong place and not even know it. And they went back to their friends and said, it's true. It turns out the women aren't crazy. He is alive and it changed the rest of their life. Listen, it's true. Turns out God does love you. But do you know? Yeah, he knows. Have you seen? Yeah, he's seen it. Turns out he does love you. Turns out he is faithful. Turns out he is all-knowing. Turns out he'll never leave you. Turns out he can be trusted. This is true. So for you, this week, what would happen if you sat down in the quietness of your home, something to write on or type on and ask this question and then decided that you wanted to live from that? How would it change your relationships? How would it change the way you forgive? How would it change 
the way you love. And so, Lord, right now in this place, we ask that we would carry this question with us into this week and that the truth of this, the resurrection, would show us the way forward. Lord, we will never, ever escape the doubts. We will never escape the misgivings and and maybe the feeling that, that sometimes you're distant when you're actually not, when you're just right beside us walking on the road. But we pray that our lives would be centered and fully focused around the goodness of who you are, Lord, and that we would declare it with our hearts and with our minds and that we would build our lives on the truth. And as we do so, would you walk with us? Walk with us. And may we walk in the truth.